Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Nicole Wynne to tell us all about her fascinating book titled Terrorism on Trial, Political Violence and Abolitionist Futures, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2023. This book examines the contemporary role, the current role, um, and the last decade-ish or so role that U.S. courts have played in the global war on terror, um, what we consider terror, how we treat people who are accused of terror. um, And this then leads to a bigger argument about what do we actually mean by political violence? Where do we think those causes come from? What are the impacts of U.S. domestic courts on things that we might think of as being more international or purely military? So the book does a whole bunch of things and raises a lot of interesting questions. So, Nicole, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us all about it. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into the many questions of your book, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this? Sure. Uh, I'm an associate professor of criminology, law, and justice at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And I feel like I wrote this book for a couple of different reasons. Uh, The first is when I was finishing my last book project, which was on the policing and surveillance of Muslim communities, um, I was participating in a rally uh, after the sentencing of some Somali youth who had sort of discussed this desire to travel to Syria to fight President Bashar al-Assad's brutal regime. They never committed an act of violence. They um, essentially never successfully traveled to Syria. Um, But the community organizers at this rally were critiquing a judge who portrayed the entire Somali community as this sort of hotbed of terrorist activity. And that necessitated and justified these really harsh prison sentences to to protect national security. So these young men faced, you know, some of them 35 years in prison um, for for talking about um, joining ISIS. And it was sort of like at this rally, I, I, I sort of realized that so much focus has been cast on the racialized policing of Muslim communities that we can overlook what happens to young people after they're charged with terrorism-related crimes. And I'm someone who's studied the school-to-prison pipeline, so looking at the different kinds of processes that push young people out of schools and and into the criminal legal system and had never really thought about following (laughs) young people uh, through the criminal legal system as their cases are being adjudicated. So I really wanted to just better understand like what goes on in court, um, how do legal, legal actors think about and negotiate dominant understandings of political violence and how this impacts individual cases. And uh, I'm not a lawyer, definitely not a lawyer. Um, so I was thinking about this really sociologically, like what are the narratives, the vocabularies, the logics uh, that get uh, mobilized in court and who has epistemic authority? How do judges think about these cases? How do they think about the role of their courts um, in the global war on terror? So that was sort of like the academic reason I wanted to, to, to write this book. Um, the second reason I wanted to write this book um, was I really wanted to contribute to um, abolitionist discussions. Um, you know, abolitionists are trying to think about how to create systems and structures that don't necessarily rely on the police and prisons for community safety and security. And, you know, one of the most common questions um, abolitionists get is this question of, like, what do we do about uh, rapists and murderers? And for my view, abolitionists are really well-versed in um, really thinking about how to reduce sexual violence and homicide without relying on the criminal legal system. And we've seen community orgs um, you know, across the globe, really, um, but but here in the U.S., um, undertake this work in a variety of really exciting ways. Um, but I realize we're not thinking about sort of a very similar question, like what do we do about terrorists? What are alternative ways um, of reducing political violence, of addressing the problem of terrorism? So 
I really wanted to explore how the criminal legal system thinks about terrorism, how it approaches um, the different kinds of people who are marked um, as terrorists. And this is like young people who are ensnared in a, a sting operation, for example, or the Somali youth who um, are upset over, you know, outraged over an oppressive regime and want to go, you know, sort of support besieged Muslims. Um, this includes indigenous water protectors who the U.S. government has called jihadists. It includes Black Lives Matter protesters who are marked as Black identity extremists, as well as like al-Qaeda fighters, Taliban fighters, um, and so on. And so, you know, for my view, if we have an understanding of how the courts think about and approach terrorism, we can also think of alternative ways of addressing and reducing political violence without uh, relying on the criminal legal system. Um, so I really wanted to think about how do we get at the root causes of this particular form of violence in a way that abolitionists have been thinking about getting at the root causes of other forms of violence. Um, and I found like the courts aren't designed to or capable of getting at these root causes of political violence. And so we actually need to sort of more thoughtfully think about, um, you know, how to, how to undertake, how to think about this work and how to engage it. Um, and then I, I guess the last thing I'll, I'll say is that, um, you know, I think, you know, working with communities targeted by terrorism prosecutions and terrorism stings, uh, you, you learn that there's more to people than the crimes that they're charged with. And so I, I really wanted to be able to write a book that doesn't condone violence, but does work to humanize terrorism defendants um, who are often, you know, in the media and courts, really reduced to, you know, these quote unquote, you know, George Bush would say they're evildoers, they're bloodthirsty, with no history, with no politics, with no capacity to love or be loved. And so part of this book is also trying to understand the complexities of people's lives beyond just sort of this terrorist label um, that's applied to them. So those are the two, you know, big for me, big reasons um, I wanted to write um, this book. Thank you for giving us that introduction. I think it's fascinating to know what brought people to writing a book and especially in this case gives us such a good idea of kind of some of the threads that we're going to be picking up as we go through. And I'd like to kind of start um, sort of where you started, the idea of I'm going to follow them through the courts and kind of see what happens. And put that way, it sounds pretty simple, right? <laughs> and it sounds like there's going to be a kind of clear process to follow. And yet in the book, you talk about some, quote, internal incoherences um, within the criminal legal system that are probably there for other issues as well, um, but are especially perhaps challenging in this area of law. Can you walk us through some of this confusing maze that you found? Yeah, you know, I think it's anybody who works in a big institution, um, I think you know that people think about and engage their work really differently. This was when I was sort of um, studying national security from the perspectives of law enforcement and national security experts. People would always say, like, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, there are these really huge bureaucracies. And so people don't even think about problems of crime, safety, and national security in the same way. So they think about their work differently and therefore they engage their work really differently. So that's just like one sort of um, basic internal incoherence um, that, you know, in the courts, people have different understandings and views of things like crime, justice, war, and terrorism. And this really came out, you know, judges had uh, really uneven understandings of what is the role of their court and the courts more generally in the war on terror. And there were some judges who um, actively worked to limit or rein in the spectacle of terrorism. Like they, you know, wouldn't let people use the word terrorism um, in the courtroom. Um, and there were others who said, you know, just like very publicly, like, you're not going to use my court to, you know, align the judicial system with U.S. law enforcement priorities. Um, you know, one judge said my court isn't here to bestow symbol, symbolic victories um, through, through their verdicts. So, you know, judges have 
you know, different understandings if the role of the court during the global war on terror is to advance the global war on terror or like is narrowly there to prosecute crime. Um, you know, within the criminal legal system, there's prosecutors in law enforcement um, who, you know, would publicly celebrate terrorism convictions as global war on terror triumphs. So they saw the role of the courts as sort of advancing the war on terror. Defense attorneys, um, you know, would say the criminal courts aren't designed to fight wars, and so we shouldn't be using them um, to execute the global war on terror. Um, there were judges, you know, in the Somali cases that I that I observed, um, you know, who really wanted to use their authority from the bench to not only speak to, um, you know, people who are sitting in the courtroom, but really to speak to the to the wider public. So there's this case of this um, young Somali um, person who, you know, wanted to go to Syria to fight and was convicted of. Um, providing material support um, to ISIS, you know, after he tried to, to get to Syria. And the judge, said, you know, spoke directly to the Somali community um, in his comments um, and saying, you know, there is a terrorist cell in Minneapolis um, and, you know, talked about how essentially the only way to prevent young people from going to Syria is to put them in handcuffs and to incarcerate them. And so this judge was like making it really clear. um, The role of my court is to deter people from going to Syria. Right. Um, And so, you know, I think judges different, you know, differentially understood the role of their courts in the war on terror. And so this then shaped what sort of was permissible in their courts, it shapes how they thought about sentencing, which then shaped the kinds of prison terms um, that defendants defendants received. So, yeah, I, I think one of the biggest internal incoherence was that people think about um, the relationship between the judicial system and the war on terror in really different ways, um, and because of that, defendants have really different outcomes for similar conduct and the kinds of legal strategies that are useful to lawyers um, might not be successful just because of who the judge is or how even the jury understands things like terrorism or ISIS um, or Al-Shabaab and so on. And so, yeah, I think it's it's really hard to understand the role of the courts um, because there's not sort of this even understanding and use of them um, in the global war on terror. So I think that's, yeah, that's the biggest sort of incoherence. Well, that's a pretty big one. (laughs) So makes sense to start there. Um, In that answer, you gave us some kind of ideas of the different sort of roles that judges might see themselves as playing um, in the context, not just of the case, but of the wider conversation. Is there anything further you want to tell us about kind of the competing roles that they're trying to negotiate? Yeah, you know, I'd say that a lot of this sort of has evolved over the course of the last 20 years. So um, people might remember that, you know, in the early days of the global war on terror, judges were called on to provide legal cover for things like the indefinite detention and torture of so-called enemy combatants and the use of secret evidence or evidence obtained through torture in the courts. Um, You know, there was a legal basis for these wartime activities for the use um, of torture, for the sort of indefinite detention um, of folks um, that was laid by President Bush's legal team and then affirmed through specific court rulings. Um, We saw this um, in the legal determination that Al-Qaeda and Taliban fighters um, were unlawful enemy combatants, so they weren't entitled to legal protections under international law. So, for example, the Geneva uh, Conventions protect against um, the use of torture while detained. Um, but if, you know, if you're a Taliban fighter and the United States declares that you're, you know, you're an unlawful combatant, you don't have access to those protections. So that was, a, that was actually a legal determination. I think people think of Guantanamo as like this lawless place, um, but it was actually created through a series of legal decisions that were made by lawyers um, and judges. And as the war on terror evolved, we saw things like preemptive prosecutions. So the police 
um, pursuing and arresting people before they commit a crime um, in order to protect national, allegedly to protect national security. And so the courts are then called on to, um, you know, convict based on this quote unquote pre-criminal activity. So law enforcement sees the value of maximizing uh, this sort of early prosecutorial intervention to enhance national security. So if we can arrest and convict um, and incarcerate people before they commit an act of criminal violence, then we're protecting national security. But of course, this like raises all kinds of civil liberty questions, right? So if I tweet that I support ISIS, is that terrorist activity? Um, and so judges are, you know, have to kind of decide, um, as well as juries have to decide, you know, is tweeting support for ISIS an act of terrorism or is it protected First Amendment um, free speech in the United States? Um, but we also saw, um, you know, under the Bush administration, uh, they started arresting people for these like really low level offenses around tax fraud and immigration violations as a preemptive national security strategy. So targeting Muslim and Arab folks um, for things like immigration violations as a way to start incarcerating people. Um, So there is one um, tax case that involved um, a Muslim charity and the judge actually concluded that the evidence didn't support the charge that the charity had funded, um, you know, so-called terrorists in Afghanistan and actually instructed the jury um, uh, before it went to deliberations um, that there wasn't any evidence that the charity um, had provided material support, weapons, armaments, or lethal aid to anyone, and that they shouldn't speculate or conjecture about um, the existence um, of this evidence. Um, But, you know, the jury still found the defendant guilty um, despite this lack of evidence. And then there are these terrorism experts who are going out um, and doing interviews with the media who are celebrating um, the conviction and reasserting this idea that Muslim charities um, take advantage of the Islamic um, tradition of charity to funnel money to terrorists. This was like sort of a common um, narrative that was spun and that supported the use of tax fraud convictions to deter terrorists. Um, And so these terrorism experts were going out to the media and saying like, look, this tax fraud case shows that we can use the courts to incapacitate or neutralize terrorists. um, And that like pursuing tax law convictions um, could essentially defund terrorist organizations. So you have a judge who's presiding over just a simple tax law case um, that is then portrayed and has no evidence that, you know, the the people involved in this case were funding terrorists or terrorist organizations, but then gets sort of framed in the public as a national security case, as a terrorism case that proves we can use the courts to win the war on terror. Right. Um, and so we can see how, you know, the the, uh, you know, police officers and, and agencies are trying to use the courts um, to win the war on terror, publicly stating this. And then judges are presiding over these cases, having to no- negotiate. Is this a tax fraud case or is this actually am I weighing in on a terrorism case? Um, so judges can get caught up in the geopolitical interests of this of sort of U.S. national security strategy, um, where their courts are viewed and 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 treated as these venues to neutralize um, terrorists. There is um, one sort of cynical criminal defense attorney um, I interviewed who said, um, you know. Like, look, adjudicating armed struggles is outside of the scope of the judicial system um, in the United States. But since the September 11th attacks, the judicial system has found itself, you know, what he called swept up in the geopolitical direction and strategy um, of the U.S. government. And, you know, what sort of court filings show and court transcripts show is that some judges actually 
relish the opportunity to contribute um, to the government's national security interests and really view their courts as sites to serve um, war-related aims. And we can think of um, the Somali the Somali case where the judge, you know, was speaking to the entire Somali community that was, you know, essentially saying like, look, you're all terrorists and this sort of proceeding uh, confirms that there's a terrorist problem in your community and I'm going to use my power and authority as a judge to incarcerate these young people for as long as, you know, is allowable under the law as a national security strategy. So that's like one sort of approach, um, one sort of role that judges have undertaken. There are other judges who, you know, just like reject this imposition of the global war on terror onto their courts. Um, And there's a a particular judge in uh, Texas who has ruled um, on a couple of different cases um, in ways that really sort of publicly reject the idea that he should weigh in, um, use his judicial authority to weigh in um, on the war on terror. So case, of Ashur Khan. And so he's a, he's somebody who tried to go to Syria to join ISIS's fight, but his family like tricked him. Um, they said like, your mom is sick. Um, and so he returned home before he joined ISIS. Um, he eventually like uh, allegedly helped a friend travel to Syria and that friend died fighting for ISIS. Um, but the judge at sentencing refused to apply what's known as the terrorism enhancement. So this is um, something that empowers the courts to enhance or increase a prison sentence. This is much like the gang enhancement. Um, But judges, in order to apply it, they have to determine that the sort of criminal activity under investigation constituted an act of terrorism. Um, And so this judge um, refused to apply the terrorism enhancement. He was appealed uh, multiple times and uh, continuously uh, continued to refused to apply this terrorism enhancement. And he said um, his reasoning was that the terrorism enhancement doubly punishes. So it it twice punishes um, conduct given what he referred to as the the ugly label of of terrorism. You know, he said that there's degrees of terrorism um, and you can't just sort of blanket blanketly punish things that we call terrorism. um, And that, he thought the enhanced terrorism enhancement sort of wrongly empowered the courts um, to quote police people who want to hurt other governments. And so for him, this idea that the courts would police sort of the conduct of people on other governments wasn't really the role of the judicial system. Um, You know, he also said there, you know, there's degrees of terrorism, he gave the example that you know there's somebody might um, bomb an armory and some someone might bomb a school, and they're both bombing places. But in his view, one was more reprehensible than the other. And so, if you just blanket apply the terrorism enhancement, it doesn't account for these different kinds of acts of terrorism. Um, and then, you know, he also just kind of said there's a politics involved. Like there's, there's more money when you say, Congress will give more money when you say that this was an act of terrorism. And so he really viewed the terrorism enhancement as applying a political label um, and not a legal label um, to terrorism defendants. So, I, you know, that's like just an, a really interesting interpretation of terrorism, of the terrorism enhancement. Um, so those are two sides of the coin, but then there are judges um, along the spectrum. And, and there are some judges who, what they called half applied the terrorism enhancement. So they try to, um, you know, say it was an act of terrorism, but then maybe not as harshly punish defendants by fully applying um, the enhancement. Um, you know, this judge in Texas also, you know, was trying to reject the idea that um tweeting, you know, tweeting allegiance to ISIS or tweeting allegiance to ISIS leaders constituted an act of terrorism. You know, he rejected the idea that buying or having an ISIS flag was um, terrorist activity. In other courts, this was used as evidence that people supported an advanced terrorism 
And for this judge, he said, like, these are First Amendment protected activities. It can't constitute terrorism. So, you know, people differently understood um, that the role of the court in the war on terror and also really differently understood what counts as terrorist activity. And so, like, all of that really shaped uneven outcomes um, in the courts. And, and so defendants had wildly different um, sentences leveled against them based on how judges um, understood things like the Syrian war or what does it mean if you have an ISIS flag? So the obvious question listening to those examples is why is there such a difference? What sorts of things, what sorts of factors, I suppose, influence kind of which way judges might make these interpretations? I mean, I think there's enormous pressure on the courts to demonstrate that they're not, uh, that they are working in the interest of national security. Like no one wants to be seen as a, a terrorist sympathizer or as soft on terrorism or have one of their defendants that, um, you know, maybe they give a light sentence to then goes on to commit um, a mass atrocity once they're released. Like, I think there was enormous anxiety around that. And you could, you know, if you sat in court and observed judges sort of walking through their logic around sentencing, um, that they were trying to balance what they thought was a reasonable sentence with sort of this demand to be tough on terrorism. And so, you know, I think that was one of the major factors Um, I think, you know, another factor is that people strongly believed um, in the war on terror and, and, you know, felt called to contribute to efforts to reduce the threat of terrorism in the United States. Um, There were other judges, though, who felt cornered by the law. And so, you know, I think one of the strategies we've seen in the United States is that um, you know, we use sting operations to, um, you know, I mean, allegedly we use them to um, find people who are vulnerable to terrorism and lock them up before they commit a mass atrocity. In practice, what, what these stings do is that they, in, they sort of ensnare vulnerable people in these elaborate concocted plots through various different forms um, of pressure. And what law enforcement has, has tried to do is instead of like convincing someone to PayPal ISIS $100, which would be enough to get, you know, a conviction in a prison term, they sort of concoct these, these really spectacular, like you're going to go bomb a restaurant kind of um, operation. So they're spectacular and really pressure the courts um, to have a really, you know, harsh um, prison sentence. And so there's this one case of James Cromarty. It's it's a fairly well-known case um, where the judge sort of says, like, this guy is utterly inept. She says something like um, his buffoonery, it, the defendant's buffoonery is, abs- is positively Shakespearean in nature. It's something like that. Um, and so she recognizes that, law enforcement um, used all of its sort of pressure and authority to to get this guy to, uh, you know, agree, to, you know, to this concocted fake plot, um, you know, as a way to get him off the street. And so she, she gets that law enforcement took advantage of somebody who's vulnerable, but then ultimately sentenced him to 25 years in prison because in her view the offense carried a a mandatory minimum sentence of 25 years. So she didn't have any judicial discretion to sentence him to anything less. So she, she feels cornered both by, you know, the pressure of sort of the spectacle of national security, but also, you know, by legal precedents. And so, you know, she says in, in her ruling that, um, you know, the defendant wasn't engaged in terrorist activity before, um, he encountered the undercover informant, um, and that sort of it was the FBI who transformed this guy's fantasies um, into real criminal activity. Um, but it was directed and dictated by the government. Um, she also sort of said, 
I don't have discretion to sentence the defendant to less than 25 years in this case because no circuit court has upheld a district court's decision not to impose a mandatory minimum because of law enforcement manipulation. Um, And she even said that the government devised this sort of fantastical plot to fire a missile at a local Air Force base. Um, And even law enforcement even created this inert stinger missile for the sole purposes of making sure that in the event of conviction, the court couldn't sentence the defendant to less than 25 years because the attack carried with it a mandatory minimum of 25 years. So, you know, essentially this judge was saying like the FBI creates heinous plots to incarcerate and incapacitate people for as long as legally possible, right? Um, So, you know, I think those those pressures, right, to, to not be... Um, soft on terrorism, and also feeling like I have to uphold mandatory minimums really sort of compel judges to rule in ways where they're clearly not comfortable um, with ruling. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think that's just really interesting. And I think um, mandatory minimums is not a term we often think of in this part of the legal system. So even just that one answer, I think, opens up a lot of useful and interesting connections with other critiques um, of different parts of the law. But I don't want to get too sidetracked going down that. I just wanted to note it. Um, You talk about in the book kind of there's those two pressures, but of course, it's even more complicated than that. There's two kind of additional actors um, I wanted to ask you about that seem to also have quite a lot of influence on how judges rule and perhaps help explain these pressures and the varied outcomes. Um, the, these, of course, are the the terrorologists, as you call them, and the lawyers. So going to the terrorologists first, um, who, who are they? We, we've mentioned them a little bit, but kind of who are they and what sort of impact do you think they have both immediately and if we're think, starting to think about the bigger picture questions you raised at the beginning of kind of what is political violence? Yeah, so, you know, terrorologists are these um, self-styled terrorism experts who are called on by jurors and judges to interpret factual evidence in terrorism-related cases. They're like other expert witnesses um, who are called on to explain complicated facts um, in particular cases. And the courts almost always admit terrorologists as expert witnesses and endorse them as the authority on terrorism, even though sort of among social scientists and among academics, um, you know, they're actually quite loathed. Um, You know, people question their credentials, they question the validity of their research, um, and particularly their allegiances to powerful institutions. Um, So there is, you know, uh, somebody who who said, uh, there's a defense attorney who said, you know, these are people who are hydroponically grown by law enforcement to testify on their behalf. And that there's this very sort of narrow subset of terrorism experts who are willing to testify because most terrorism experts um, think terrorism and political violence more generally um, is more complicated um, and, and nuanced. Um, and so they are therefore not called on to testify because they give too much ground um, to thinking about the political context and material conditions that give rise to violence. Um, so, so, the, so the first thing is that they're considered experts and they get admitted into the court to testify as experts. Um, and because of that, they play a really big role in how the jury um, and the judge come to understand the factual evidence um, in a case, right? So there is this um, one uh, lawyer I interviewed who said, um, you know, that these terrorologists, you know, essentially can can come on and if they were um, talking about a terrorism case about the Brooklyn Bridge and the the terrorism expert said the Brooklyn Bridge is a gamma ray shield and said it over and over and over again um, that the jury would then come to believe that the Brooklyn Bridge is a gamma ray shield. And so that's the power of expert witnesses is that they become the authority on the topic to the point where other testimony by lay witnesses or defendants themselves 
um, don't matter. Um, so there was one case where um, a terrorologist, Evan Coleman, was called to testify um, and on the sort of origins and structure of Al-Qaeda. And the defendant claimed that he wasn't an Al-Qaeda operative, that he didn't know anything um, about Al-Qaeda's operational plans. And two people who were detained at Guantanamo test- also testified saying, or gave statements saying, yeah, this person is not an Al-Qaeda member. We don't know who he is. He doesn't know anything about our plans. Um, and Evan Coleman, the terrorologist, testified that Al-Qaeda operates through this insular cell structure. And so a lack of evidence about the defendant's relationship to Al-Qaeda and his knowledge of Al-Qaeda's operational plans wasn't didn't mean that the person was innocent. The lack of evidence was just because that that's Al-Qaeda's insular cell structure, right? And so because of this, right, he essentially said these other Al-Qaeda operatives would have no idea that this person was Al-Qaeda because of how Al-Qaeda functions. Um, And this sort of meant um, that the jury believed, okay, there's no evidence proving any links to Al-Qaeda, but that's because of how Al-Qaeda is organized. And so, you know, they ended up convicting him. um, And the judge in his comments said, you know, Evan Coleman's testimony sort of confirms that the defendant could be a member of Al-Qaeda and other people wouldn't know about it. And so there's no evidence. Um, So that's sort of how terrorologists can can sort of shape um, jurors' understanding um, of a person's guilt. Um, This defendant's uh, conviction was later overturned because additional evidence came out to prove that the person wasn't a member of Al-Qaeda. So, you know, we see that a terrorologist can testify and, and convince a jury that someone who's not a member of Al-Qaeda is actually a member of Al-Qaeda and get a conviction. Um, so, you know, that's like, you know, one way that terrorologists are really powerful. I think another way that terrorologists are really powerful is that they really focus um, on, you know, what, you know, some people call radicalization theory, um, this idea that um, terrorists come with observable warning signs. um, And those uh, observable warning signs are things like a radical political ideology, a way a person dresses, increased religiosity, and so on. And so terrorologists come on to essentially say, well, this person was consuming ISIS content, or this person started praying uh, more frequently and so on to essentially prove um, the person is a terrorist or is predisposed um, to being a terrorist. So, so the role of these experts is really to, to shape the worldview, like essentially confirm the worldviews um, of juries, um, you know, that, you know, what we hear in the media, what we hear on TV, what we hear from political leaders um, is what we should is how we should think about terrorists, um, and and that view is that terrorists are evildoers. Uh, we don't have to think about why people might want to join ISIS. We don't have to think about the Syrian war and its complexities. We don't have to think about where ISIS came from. That there's sort of this very narrow um, understanding that terrorists are evildoers who do evil things because they're evil, um, and so it sort of it sort of removes any consideration of history or politics um, from the conversation um, in a way that, you know, really just dehumanizes and decontextualizes terrorism and, and terrorists. That's really helpful for kind of understanding what you were talking about earlier of the different ways that judges have interpreted their position and the role of their courts um, in terms of the war on terror. I want to make sure, though, that we also talk about lawyers, because I at least was slightly surprised reading this and going, hang on, wait, all the films say that the lawyers are the ones that make all the difference in the courtroom, right? Um, And of course, that depends on what bit of law you then investigate properly. Um, But in this particular case, I mean, the terrorologists, as you just explained, have quite a bit of impact. What about the lawyers? Yeah, so I mean, there's prosecutors and and defense attorneys, and prosecutors, um, you know, definitely try to 
reassert the exceptionality of terrorists, that terrorism defendants are uniquely heinous and uniquely uh, deserving of the harshest punishments allowable under the law. Um, And we see this, um, you know, there could be, you know, again, like a tax fraud case where they try to get admitted as evidence um, inflammatory material like videos of ISIS beheadings, right? So prosecutors are really invested in sort of proving, you know, how terrible um, and heinous um, particular defendants are. And then when these cases, when they win these cases, they and law enforcement, um, you know, really want to celebrate the success, uh, you know, of their prosecution vis-a-vis the war on terror. Um, So, you know, defense attorneys are trying to sort of push back against you know, popular understandings of terrorism, popular understandings of, of political violence by really trying to contextualize their defendants' cases at sentencing. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, I heard a couple of things from, from defense attorneys. One was that, um, you know, trying to contextualize their clients' cases at, sen- at sentencing particularly could, you know, lead to a reduced, you know, a lesser prison sentence. Um, you know, but the other thing they said was that this is like unsuccessful most of the time because the weights of conventional understandings of terrorism is just um, so intense um, and so powerful that trying to contextualize or historicize um, someone's case um, is, is actually really difficult. Um, and because of this, the, when they try to contextualize a client's case, it's not necessarily because it's going to be legally successful, but because they see some value in getting on the record um, and into evidence, the idea that there is a politics um, or there is a reason to why people may have engaged in violence or wanted to engage in violence. Um, and, and part of that is just about humanizing their clients and trying to challenge the dominant narrative um, around what people are fighting for and why. Um, so there's a, a really powerful example of this in, in a Chicago area case um, of a defendant, Oz Al-Jayab, who, who went to Syria in 2013 um, to fight the Assad regime. And if you sort of look at court filings, the defense sort of talks about his, his early experiences. Um, he's a Palestinian refugee who grew up in Iraq and talks about sort of living under um, Saddam Hussein, the brutality um, of that regime, you know, then goes through the U.S. invasion, um, you know, where, again, um, the defendant, as a, as a young child, is experiencing, you know, rocket attacks, uh, bombings, right, family members dying, um, and then, you know, the defense moves to, to sort of discuss, you know, Saddam is uh, removed um, and then the U.S. military leaves and there's this power vacuum that, again, creates all this sort of bloody sectarian violence. Um, and uh, eventually the defendant flees to Syria. Um, and it's in Syria where, you know, he starts to experience Assad's brutality. He sees his friends and some of his family members again being killed. Um, and so even though he he immigrates to the United States, we see how, you know, seeing, um, you know, the chemical attack, um, in uh, Assad's chemical attack on Syrian civilians really sort of motivates him to go back to Syria or, or try to go to Syria to fight. Um, and so this, this all becomes a, uh, it's a, you know, it's like 50 pages long that becomes a part of the public record. Um, and, and part of what, you know, this filing is trying to do is to say, we can, you know, the dominant narrative is this, that this guy is some crazy terrorist who just wants to go kill people because he's heinous and evil and his religion re- radicalized him. And actually, Instead, what we get is a story that makes a lot of sense, right? That we can understand sort of the geopolitical history of the region and understand why someone would want to go fight. Um, and if we if we take that sort of that biography of the defendant, we sort of realize like we can lock this person up, but it's not going to undo um, what led to the Syrian crisis. It's not going to 
um, undo sort of what led to the uh, dissolution of any sense of security in Iraq, right? That like, if we actually want to address those things, if we want to address why this young person went back to Syria to fight, we have to really address the root causes of violence, which is these oppressive authoritarian regimes. It's about continued U.S. Uh, military intervention. Um, it's about you know foreign occupation. Um, that these are really the root causes of violence, and we only sort of arrive at that conclusion through sort of this contextualizing story uh, biography of the defendant. And it's the very thing that like you don't get to hear in any other part. Um, of a judicial proceeding. Like you only hear this at sentencing if a defense attorney decides it's useful um, to the case, but the jury has already decided that the person is guilty. Um, You know, most uh, cases end in a plea deal. So there's no opportunity um, to assert these kinds of counter narratives um, into the record. Um, so, So I think, you know, they offer us a really important lens through which we can understand terrorism and political violence differently. Uh, But because the dominant narrative um, is so powerful in framing terrorism as just this like crazy thing, crazy people do, um, we don't really ever have to think more thoughtfully or in a more nuanced way about where violence comes from and how to address its root causes. That's quite an unfortunately powerful um, inhibition that all of this puts together on, as you said, why people do things and kind of what reasons are thinkable about why people do things. If we're then trying to move past that, um, you say in the book that, quote, the figure of the terrorist expands abolitionist frameworks. Can you tell us about what you mean by that? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest things, one of the biggest takeaways in thinking about sort of this figure of the terrorist or the criminalization of armed resistance and people's continued use of violence to affect social change is that abolitionists really need to think um, transnationally. So I think, you know, for example, in the United States, um, abolitionists are thinking about, um, you know, if we want to address the root causes of violence, we have to tackle things like poverty, housing, um, heteropatriarchy, um, and that translates to things like building mutual mutual aid campaigns or creating systems of community accountability, nurturing healthy relationships, um, things like that. Um, And that doesn't necessarily translate to, for example, the Iraq context or the Syrian context, um, because Sure, eliminating poverty could reduce some political violence, but you know a lot of the root causes um, of political violence are transnational. They're sort of based on um, you know outrage over, for example, U.S. military campaigns, um, and so we can't. You know, I, I think the prevailing idea is that we can partially use the court. We can use the courts to partially deter young people from joining um, armed, you know, armed mil- militias, um, or that we can lock people up to protect um, our national security. But does that actually make sense? Um, like, is locking up um, the defendant that I just um, spoke about for traveling to Syria to try to depose the Assad regime and install some new form of violence, uh, new form of um, governance in the regime. Like, does that act, does does incarceration actually get at the root causes of why people are traveling to Syria, or, for example, why people are traveling to Ukraine to try to oust um, Russia, you know, Russian soldiers after the invasion? Um, so, you know, I think we have to. The figure of the terrorist and, and, and considering what people are fighting for and why pushes us to think that if, we, that if abolitionists are invested in tackling the root causes of violence in the context of terrorism, that means thinking transnationally and it means integrating an anti-imperialist framework because a lot of the political violence we're seeing 
across the globe, and especially right now, come, you know, is rooted sort of in an anti-colonial or anti-imperialist um, sort of positioning. Um, and so, so if, if we want to reduce violence, um, you know, for invested in national security, we would get at what is inciting armed resistance. And, and the things that are inciting armed resistance are not like people just have radical beliefs because they have radical beliefs or the religion is telling them, you know, to, to, to enact violence. It's because people are living in a particular context um, and they want to change the conditions in which they're living. So Syrians living under a brutal regime are using violence, you know, to change that regime. And so if, 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 you know, we want to, t- to tackle those root causes um, of violence, we have to actually um, think about the role of U.S. empire, the role of, you know, foreign military intervention, of occupation um, into our analyses. And then those analyses should sort of ground the kinds of work and interventions we undertake um, as abolitionists. Um, so, it's, it, you know, it's, it, I think the figure of the terrorist essentially says, like, we have to, instead of demonizing and dismissing straight off the bat violence as a, as a form of pol- political action, um, instead, we have to think really thoughtfully about what is, what is driving violence and how do we then attend to those sort of drivers of violence, important questions that hopefully listeners um, from this and of course if they then go read the book um, will be more able to have those questions, be thinking about them, be critiquing the cases around them. So thank you for taking us through that. Before I let you go though, would you mind um, this book is obviously available now (laughs) you're no longer I'm sure happily uh, working on it. Is there anything else you might be working on now that it's done whether or not it's a book whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to preview for us? Sure I'm actually working with uh, a colleague uh, Nosheen Hussein on a on a hopefully a new book project that's examining um, how war on terror media coverage has shaped um, people's experiences with the war on terror. So thinking about the way that, for example, you know, related to the to this book, the way that terrorism prosecutions are covered in the media shape how defendants' families, siblings, neighbors um, come to experience the war on terror. And so we're trying to examine the cascading effects of terrorism prosecutions and of the global war on terror by people who are affected, um, particularly through sort of media coverage that depicts Muslim and Arab communities, um, you know, as sort of, you know, potential hotbeds of of terrorist activity, and then what this means for their everyday lives. So that's hopefully what's what's on deck next. Hmm. That sounds like a fascinating project. Um, Thank you for the little sneak preview. We'll have to keep an eye out for it. But of course, while you're working on it with your co-author, of course, um, people can read the book we've been discussing today titled Terrorism on Trial, Political Violence and Abolitionist Futures, published by the University of Minnesota Press. Nicole, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me and for the conversation.